Welcome and thanks for listening. My name is Christian Buckley, and you're listening to the Collab Talk podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Sagi Brody, co-founder and CTO of Opti9, on the balance between building a technology company and creating a healthy culture. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Collab Talk podcast, where we discuss the convergence of technology, business productivity, and collaboration culture. My guest today is Sagi Brody, co-founder and chief technology and product officer of Opti9. Welcome, Sagi. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, this is a, a, an interesting topic. I think that it really touches on kind of the core of what I try to cover here with Collab Talk is that balance between technology and building out a business around technology uh, and having a healthy culture. And so I'd love to hear, like, why don't you kind of fill out the introduction, talk about yourself, your company, what you do, and then we'll jump into this topic. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I've been sort of um, in the in the uh, internet infrastructure, digital infrastructure industry for over over 20 years, um, co-founded a company called WebAir in the late 90s, and, and, and that eventually turned into Optinine. And, and, you know, it was sort of the Wild West back then. It was just when the World Wide Web was getting started. Um, I, I just sort of stumbled upon having fun playing with servers when I was uh, 18, 19, and, and I met a, um, a friend um, who um, asked me to come start a company with them. And, uh, and then we started WebAir, and we, we grew, and, uh, you know, eventually it turned, it turned from like a clubhouse into a legitimate company. Um, and we had to transition, you know, at, at that point I was, I was a, a young tech, all that mattered to me was tech, you know, to the extent that we, we brought in and hired people to work with us. To me, I looked at everything from a technical lens. And so uh, it took a long time to kind of understand that, you know, there was, there's other skills that were needed, um, non-technical skills, or to understand the, the um, capabilities of people, even technicians outside of what they could do hands to keyboard and really started and start to value those things especially for myself as you know especially i think this is something that a lot of technicians go through when you when you move from a, a an engineering position to management i think up until that point all your own self-worth is around your technical capability and letting go yeah at some point you have to have a leap of faith and let go of that and and agree that there i i can provide value without being hands to keyboard and that was a, a big deal for me personally yeah, you know, actually, my my first tech, my first real tech job, um, pay was lousy, but it was I, I joined for the experience. Was there for about two years until my division was sold. But the founder of that company was um, kind of on your point. Like he he talked about well, there's the resume, and then there's once you get to know people, you see somebody who. Um, might not have the, the the resume they don't have the formal education in that sphere but just really perform well in in real life and um and, and so you have to kind of look for those cues so he was he was very much like a, a, a an advocate for you know constantly reading management books marketing books and kind of self-improvement you know that kind of side but i i really 
it took it was almost a decade before I again worked for a company where they had that the management layer had that philosophy of it's not just like hey your resume got you in the door and you maybe even started working here uh but they promoted people based on you know into especially in the people management roles based on their people management skills which was and as I'm, I'm you're you're smiling i know you know this as well that is rare in certainly in the technology world where people are promoted based on their technical skills into people management roles and are usually again my experience an ill fit for a people management role yeah um you know, this is something that lots of companies, I think, struggle with. And in some companies, you know, what I've seen is they have sort of like dual dual tracks where you have a technology track and a management track. I've definitely, I've definitely made the mistake of sort of taking the most senior technician and saying, you're great and you are now the manager of that team, you know, congratulations. And they just want to keep producing and coding or, or whatever they're good at. And, um, you know, there's been some others that that em embrace the management side of it um, or sort of get sick of the hands to keyboard. Um, and I think that's actually, you know, becoming more common um, because, you know, as as the industry, you know, evolves uh, and the complexity of these systems increase, you know, there is a lot of value um, to, to provide just by having context and just by having experience and just by, you know, just by having gone through the different complex scenarios, there's so much value you can add by just mentoring engineers that have come in and, you know, had academic experience, um, but not had operational experience, you know, not don't have battle scars from being in the trenches. Um, and I do think it's easier these days for senior engineer to to you know flip to a manager based on that you know that mentoring capability um, and just the ability to be an advisor or a consultant if they want to. So what is your looking back now? What what is your approach to building a healthy culture? I mean, is this something that was this kind of at the forefront of your thought process with Opti Nine, or is it something that you again kind of evolved? over time? Yeah, it, it definitely evolved. Um, I think that we had a healthy, you know, I think there's, there's not, there's many different aspects and examples. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few. One of them I think is just a culture of innovation. Um, you know, back when we were first starting, if you asked me what products we sold, you know, I laughed and tell you um, the only product we sold was the word yes. And customers would ask us to do things and we, so yeah, and we say yes and figure it out later. And People get excited when they have to solve problems um, and they have to figure things out as they go along and you give them the trust to, to do that. Um, and it also it also um, inspires a lot of collaboration. And I think probably, you know, probably the, the most famous example of that is, you know, the um, uh, the Apollo missions to the moon. It's like we're going to do it. We don't know how yet and put a bunch of smart people in the room. And so I've had a lot of really successful experiences like that where um, uh, a partner um, brought us, you know, like we weren't even like planning on doing, you know, a certain offering and a partner will say, Hey, can you do this? And if you can, like, yeah, I have like the biggest deal of the century. And we're like, yeah, give us three weeks. Um, and so I think that like, if you have that, if you have interesting problems to solve that excite people, it kind of, it kind of washes away a lot of potential pitfalls because people get excited. Um, the other thing, other thing I'll mention is, you know, I think where a lot of people get hung up, especially in the tech industry is, is with the shiny objects, you know, and there's sort of this 
unspoken pressure that a lot of engineers have to keep, you know, keep their resume up to date with all the latest and greatest technologies. Um, and like, you know, I gotta have, you know, React and I gotta have, you know, I don't know, you know, Go on my resume. And, and like, it, it's, it's pretty unhealthy, I think, because it forces you to constantly be, feel like you're, you're behind the gun and you're working with technologies that are not so relevant. Um, and what, one of the things I like to promote you know, from a culture perspective is, is soft skills and promote the fact that there are things that you can learn that will transcend the, the Kool-Aid of the day that will be able to help you with your career, regardless of the specific, you know, coding language or even the technology you're working with and try to promote that. I think, you know, some examples of that are, I think the best example is, is this, the skill of troubleshooting, being a good troubleshooter. Um, and, you know, I know that you're familiar with this, right? And it, it seems obvious sort of in retrospect, but nobody sort of goes and nobody goes and takes a course at school on how to be a good troubleshooter. Um, I think some, you know, in, in some company training, they probably cover it. But if you look at other industries like the medical industry, where they do sort of like these bedside clinics where they talk about, you know, they talk about, you know, what is the diagnosis and they actually focus on training for that. It's, it's very interesting, right? And I've had experiences, I'm sure you ha you've had as well, where, you know, someone maybe more junior is working on something, they can't figure it out, and, and you walk over very little context, and you kind of com compar compartmentalize it, um, and you kind of isolate it. And I mean, I think it's a great skill to learn. I think it should be taught. I, I wish more people had a little bit of that understanding. It's like if you ever have called into any technical support. And, and I'm sure most people have uh, that experience and they're frustrated by that. But if you understand how that process works, you understand why they're asking all the dumb questions. Well, I just told you, here's where I am. It's like, well, yeah, but I need to walk through. I need to know what operating system, what browser, what version of each thing. So have you tried this? Have you done things? You have to go through and answer all those fundamental things to be able to get to the harder issues, which is most likely where those things are course there's a the running joke with like uh you know microsoft products have you tried turning it off and on again <laughs> um solves so many issues and so it's always a good place to start but again if people understood better understood that process i'm i'm hopeful that they would be a little more uh patient with that process because they understand hey this is it, it it might find something very simple that you overlooked, but it is the path to, again, solving the larger issues once the small things are out of the way. Yeah, and people can take pride in that. They can take pride in being a really good troubleshooter. Um, I take pride in it, and I think it's super fun. You know, and there's obviously, you know, uh, tip, tips and techniques, like you mentioned, when, when someone calls in. I mean, the good one there is you know, did, did the customer or, or person on the other side, did, did they pre-troubleshoot? Like, are they telling you what's actually broken or, or, or are they telling you a symptom because they've made some assumptions or already, or they think they know why it's broken and leading you down a rabbit hole. So asking the right yeah. questions, obviously not changing too many things, not changing more than one thing at once and, and retesting, being able to reproduce. Um, those are fun. I think other examples of non-technical soft skills to promote, which I think in turn, you know, better the culture. Um, another one is, and this is kind of a silly one. Well, I'll give you I get a better one first. Another good one is being a good technical writer, right? Um, this is where I think a lot of technicians fall short. You know, the last 5% of your project is like, you know, documentation and monitoring. 
uh, maybe training, right? Yeah. And like how many people just totally forget that part, but being taking pride in being a good technical writer. So the person that has to look at this thing at 4am doesn't have to call you and can figure it out on their own. I mean, again, you can take pride in being a good technical writer and that plus troubleshooting. Those are two skills right there that um, you can take with you. And it doesn't matter what's pot, you know, what's the shiny object of the day. They're going to make you a, a better engineer, manager, everything. Um, another good one is, you know, being being resourceful, being a good Googler, right? And I try to instill this in my kids because, I mean, how important is that? You know, um, for me personally, when I started, it was before, you know, Google and everything. And it was mostly open source technologies that we were using. And, um, you know, you, you got to recompile the software. And then I remember times where, you know, you get stuck. I'd have to go into like IRC chat rooms and try to find the, the the authors of these things. And, you know, it's not, not the most PC thing to say these days, but I have to, to change my nickname on the chat rooms to like, uh, you know, Jenny 24 F <laughs> in order to get anybody to answer my technical questions. But right. Hey, you know, that's just an example of being resourceful because, you know, there was a customer that had a problem in relation to that. Either I fixed it or we lost the customer. Yeah, there, there are, it, it, I'm laughing too, just because I've, I understand this exact issue. I have a good friend who was in, uh, so Microsoft support for a number of years um, as a contractor and then before becoming a full-time employee, but, uh, and he would talk about that there were just certain, like you knew that there was a partner, there was a, you know, a, a service provider out there, a consultant, consultant who was struggling with something and they're calling and repeatedly with questions in the same area, all valid questions. They're basically, they were leveraging support and going through to try and work through these, these, these issues. But at the same time, again, I started my career 33 years ago as a tech writer, as a business analyst, I'm documenting a lot of this is that a lot of the, the issues, especially these days, is something that's poorly documented or not documented at all. I always start with the, you know, the solution, the tree of, of issues. I walk through whatever I just did this last night. That's why it's fresh in my mind and was had a problem with the product that I had just purchased online, went through the tree, did not find the solution, spelled it out, uh, and got a response this morning that, you know, to thank me for the issue, they're going to look at it. They, they, they agreed that it's something that's outside of what they had. So that's what I love is to identify the problems that have not been documented. Uh, yeah. And, and how much, how much more dangerous and scary is it these days where the complexity of our, our applications are just so much, so much more so than they were before. And, you know, I think that is something that a lot of IT leaders are not talking about and business analysts to an extent too is, is, you know, we, one of the goals of IT these days should be to, you know, try to um, reduce complexity and reduce complexity sprawl because it just exacerbates all of these issues. I mean, imagine having to, to document an application that's, you know, sitting up, you know, it's, let's say it's on Azure and speaking to Salesforce and it's using these passes and SASs and this and that. I mean, that's just, mm -hmm. you know, it, it makes the problem so much worse. Um, Although I have seen some pretty cool technologies come up like um, chat GPT type stuff that will, you know, read in all of your customer documentation and you can just ask it like, hey, tell me, tell me what's, tell me how, what's unique about this customer from our standard. Tell me where they have stuff set up, but, but still garbage in, garbage out, right? 
Yeah. Well, well, that's, that's the thing. I know I've, I've, uh, as a non-coder, but I've heard uh, engineers talk about leveraging AI to generate the documentation, but to your point, you still need to go and read through that. It might look at and make certain assumptions based on what you've coded. Doesn't mean that it's correct on that first pass. And I would argue that it's probably not correct that you need to read through it, but, uh, whether you're searching to look for solutions to problems or trying to document something you've created, the tools are getting better to be able to help with that process, but you still need to do it. It's still not just automated. Like, Hey, I wrote this thing. I created this product, generate the documentation around it. It doesn't quite work that well. Yeah. It's got a, it's got a ways to go. And, and I think going back to your original question about, how all this relates to culture, you know, what I've seen is that these things actually matter to, you know, to other, to other technicians, you know, to the extent that you troubleshooted something properly before dumping it on someone else's plate, um, to the extent that you've documented, you know, um, what you needed to or whatever you wrote properly, um, or that you were resourceful enough before you came to somebody and said, I'm stuck you know, smart engineers, smart people like to work with other smart people who are not lazy. And I've seen so many cases where, you know, some of my best engineers have just, you know, have just expressed frustration. They're like, I don't, we don't, I don't like working with these people because they're not, you know, why, why should I have, to, why should they just give up so quickly and send it to me? Or why should I have to be pulled in and waste my night when people are not documenting stuff properly? Or why didn't they spend two minutes Googling? And, um, so it is, it is very impactful on many levels. Um, and the ironic thing is it, it helps everyone. It helps the, the individual that should be doing it. It helps the company, helps the customers and, you know, everyone else. Yeah. You know, I, I, that, that scenario I ran, worked with, I was in operations for years, uh, worked with a, one of our senior SEs. And one of the reasons why he was a repeated, like, gold star award and and was recognized by his peers as one of the best is because he did he looked at those situations that you just described people coming in not doing the footwork not going and running through the documentation that's already out there not not googling to look for answers to that but he had a, a great you know bedside manner for that and would use that as a mentoring opportunity and it got recognized as that. And he had fewer and fewer calls or repeat calls from those same individuals because he looked at that as his opportunity to help them better understand what they should do before calling support. And again, one, one awards around it. That's one approach to it. Absolutely. Um, and, and another approach is that is to, uh, and there's some companies that take this approach and i don't know that it's the right i'm not it's necessarily the wrong approach either but making it very difficult to find the live person but making sure that you have the robust tools online to be able to answer those questions and chat bots and ai to answer a lot of those kind of fundamental questions um again that can be frustrating but uh, and, and there's always should always be like with my bank, you know, hit zero, reach, reach the live person, bypass all of this. Um, but uh, to to use that as you know, learning for the system as well of, you know, hey, is this truly something that is has not been captured and documented? Um, do you need to talk to a live person? Yeah, I, those are touchy. I mean, 
It's tough, you know, and a lot of that depends on your mood. You know, like I had an experience yesterday where I th I thought the um the you know the uh, automated assistant was just not going to be able to help me. And honestly, I was calling a restaurant and I just wanted to know like what time they closed. And and I you know like I right, give it a shot. I get you know it's an easy one. I I, I had like an in my head an eighty percent chance that it was it was not going to get it. It got it, and I was happy and you know, I was fine. I mean, but like depending on my 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 mood, I could have just been like you know screw this. I, I need to speak to someone. I don't want to deal with this. You know. Yeah. Um, and this go obviously this all goes back to cust customer service. So well, hold it. Hold said, more and more that data is being captured is it is out online because I like I don't even call for that stuff. I just did yeah. that this last week. Is just asked my digital assistant over there on the windowsill yeah, yeah. Uh, and got that informa information. But again, if yeah, it's not that's, that's documented, true. if it's not out there. It, I actually checked it and it was wrong. I, I It oh. was like not filled in. And <laughs> yeah. that was frustrating enough on, on its own. But I, you know, I did see um, there, there have been a few startups that I spoke to not too long ago who are basically going to be, um, oh, actually one of them is is focused on, you know, sales training of salespeople. And um, reading all the documentation, creating videos, creating chatbots, because just like the tech conversation we were talking about before, um, who ends up training the salesperson, another salesperson, mm -hmm. uh, and that salesperson is also quoted. And, you know, it's not necessarily fair to them. I mean, yeah, you have ones that, like you mentioned, uh, want to mentor and, and are into it, but um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a drain on the business. It takes a lot of time. Turnover and sales um, can be high. And so... Um, this this uh, generative AI will read all your documentation, read all your training manuals, watch all your videos. Um, but I, it, it's a little too early to understand how effective it is. But it is pretty cool that, that these things are coming. Well, that's a good segue into my next question was going to be like, how do you hire for people that are uh, going to be creative and, and problem solvers and do that? Like, like how do you act like personally look for that? Cause again, you might have somebody that has the right education. They've got the, the, the right number of years of experience. They seem to understand the subject matter, but how do you, how do you interview for problem solving and, and ingenuity? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, there's two questions that I've, that I've always asked. Um, one has been, you know, to, to ask them, tell me about if it's, a, if it's a technical, a technical role, you know, tell me about, you know, the, um, the most complex, um, thing you've built that you're technically proud of. And I don't care if it has anything, it doesn't, it can have nothing to do with the job that you're, that you're interviewing for. It can be anything. In fact, I think to the extent that it is, sort of extracurricular activity is, is better because um, it shows they like to tinker in general. But tell me about, you know, should, you know um, flex your technical muscle. Tell me about something that you have, either something you built that you're super proud of that demonstrates sort of how low level you can get, or even an issue that you, that like sticks out in your head is like, you know, this ruined my weekend, uh, you know, I ruined the weekend of my life, but by Monday morning, like, figured it out and here's what it was. And those are really fun stories, um, you know, regardless of which, which way they go, because you really hear, you know, to, to what extent did they not give up on something? You hear about all the roadblocks that they ran into and what they did to circumvent them, get around them, to solve them. Um, you know, you hear projects that, you know, you know I, I think, like I said before, if it's, if it's something they built at home, I, I, I used a Raspberry Pi to do this and that, and I had to buy this and connect it that way. Those are really fun stories. And some people you have to like, like, like force them to tell you about stuff that didn't happen in previous jobs. Um, 
The other question I think that's really interesting to ask for this is pick pick a system that you you know very well. Like if you if you're very familiar with um, monitoring systems, you know, and basically proposition it to them. Hey, I want you to you know I'm giving you um, an example, a use case. I want you to build me a monitoring system. Um, here here are the assumptions. The monitoring system needs to monitor you know a bunch of applications on the web or servers. It needs to check this, check that. And um, what you can ask me any other questions you need to know and tell me how you would build it. Um, and then that really just opens you up. To, first of all, it's interesting for them to, to hear what questions they ask you about, about the requirement and use case. Mm -hmm. And then they'll, they're gonna tell you what they're gonna do. Um, and then, you know, you know, you know the system, you know what you're talking about. So you can kind of, you know, and listen, sometimes they get stuck and you have to guide them and give them some suggestions, but um, it just really, helps you understand how they think, um, you know, from, from a, a non-specific way. Meaning it's not related to a specific technology. It's more about their logical thinking. You know, I always, you know, I know that there are a number of these kind of the questions where it's not about the answer. It's not about getting the answer correct or not. It's more about the process. What is their mm -hmm. thought process with coming to an answer? One of those uh, that I was asked in an interview 25 years ago was how many windows are in new york city and uh and it's one of those again it's it's uh part of the problem i have with questions like that is that usually the people asking them they read it somewhere they're not specifically trained in you know and how to break down the response to that they have a general idea of that um and they but usually don't know how to take that and translate into you know that that next step but Again, it's about, you know, how, how would you answer that? It's uh, how I answered it um, was I said, well, you know, I, first thing I do is Google it. Uh, it was in the Microsoft ecosystem. So I guess I should have said Bing. This is pre Bing though. <laughs> so Google, Google it, but um, you know, look for that. And, and so then I just started asking questions. So I have no idea what the guy was actually looking for. He kind of went in a completely different direction. Again, I don't think he was, <laughs> prepared to uh to to really go in and decipher you know the solution there but again that if somebody struggles with talking through a problem um that is something that i think which which is kind of the the why you ask those types of questions are they going to just get stymied and say i don't know or are they going to ask questions are they going to make certain assumptions um are you going to look for people that are willing to quickly recognize that they don't have the data necessary to make a decision and reach out for help. It's one of the biggest problems that I saw, certainly as a manager, people that sat on problems rather than going and asking for help or more information. Yeah, it, it is, it, and that is a very interesting, I, I think that question is just as you know, it very it gets the same point across. I think that the one I asked, and that's actually it might even be better because it's not because it's not technical. Um, it's great because sometimes you look at a resume and it, it, they look great on paper, and you get super excited. You want the person to work. You're you're almost like in your head, you're like, I'm gonna. This is the one. I'm gonna hire them because it, you know you're solving it solves a problem for you. You, get, you can stop looking and doing all these interviews. And then you ask a question like that, and sometimes it co totally like there's a completely different you know narrative. Um, so th those are helpful, and I don't think you have to go through a million questions either. I think one one or two of those is probably enough to give you a really good 
perspective. What so as a, a leadership team? I mean, is this something that you look at you know, and talk about on a regular basis? Is like the health of the culture of your organization? Like, what do those conversations look like? Yeah, I mean, at, at Optinine, um, and I'm in, you know, I'm involved in Optinine still. I'm still the CTO there. I'm, I'm also consulting for, and actually, I, I will give you, you know, talk about culture. I can, I've been dealing with a lot of uh, technology companies outside the United States whose cultures are totally different. And part of what I'm trying to help them with is bridge that gap. Um, but just on Optinine, it is something that Optinine manages, you know, specifically. Um, we do have sort of a person who's in charge of culture. And, you know, it, what's great about the way that that, that they're doing it is um, we have our, you know, we have our, um, it's not the mission statement, it's it's the values of the company. And every, every month on the company call, um, somebody talks about, volunteers to talk about one of the values and how it shows up for them and really how they see it in other people and their peers, you know, how, how this person, you know, how Chris, um, you know, demonstrated ne the, the value of never stop learning or putting the customers first. Mm -hmm. And I think that's powerful when, when you empower the employees to be part of it and help, you know, build the narrative. And, you know, when we first started doing it, um, cause it was new to me, you know, I, I, you know, I kind of had this, you know, office space kind of cheesy reaction to it. Um, but then when I started hearing people that I respect so much talk about how this other person embodied, um, you know, a specific value and how it helped them and help the customer, like, wow, it gave me goosebumps. I was like, this is, this is powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, for the companies that are outside the United States, you know, I deal with a lot of Israeli startups and I see a lot of, um, of deal flow of, of startups from them. In fact, the one I mentioned to you about the, the, the Gen AI you know, sales training was one of them. I noticed the same pattern, um, amazing technology companies, but you know, many of them, they have absolutely no idea how to market to US-based um, enterprises and they have no idea how procurement and distribution and resellers and all that sort of stuff here works. And so there is a big, you know, cultural gap. In fact, um, nothing against them, but I remember I did an introduction with someone um, in, in a, another company, another country, and, 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 I, and I introduced myself in my background and I'm like, give me your introduction. And he said, you know, I am so-and-so and, and I, you know, and I am the number one cybersecurity expert in, in my country. And I'm like, well, that's cool, but like that wouldn't fly in the US. Like if you introduce yourself as the number one cybersecurity expert in your country, like that just doesn't fly here. Everybody would look at you funny. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think there's there are cultural gaps and you might have the best technology out there to solve a problem. But if you cannot hold a conversation and win people's trust to an extent, um, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, it's so funny that I mean, so many of the, the books I, I'm just uh, used to be a very passionate reader of leadership development books and certain folks that I'm just huge, huge fans of. And one of them is, is Seth Godin from a, as a marketing guy, you know, it's my undergrad in, in marketing by my MBA, essentially a marketing degree. And, uh, but also kind of watching when he sold his company, uh, Yo-Yo Dine. So in the mid nineties, so getting to watch that whole, that arc of him moving into that marketing guru space. So many of the themes of his books are about, um, you know, authenticity, um, uh, about, you know, uh, um, you know, 
being open in your communications again that's that's it's part of that authenticity um it, it's uh um you know being able to tell good stories in fact i wrote a blog post years ago that did ver perform very well but was um hire people who tell good stories mm. and and it goes back to what, a lot of what we talked about if if i can't if i can't articulate to you a success that I've had. And that's why a lot of you know, hiring managers ask those questions that they want you not just to think of something to say, but um, you're looking for people that can very easily say, well, here's an example of something that I have. This Maybe it's not the biggest one, but it's one that came to mind and be able to talk about those experiences, especially when I'm looking at hiring people managers, you need to have people that can quickly bring on relevant experiences, talk about those things. Maybe it's not even somebody, maybe it's not even their experience, but they can share something that one of their former direct reports went through and experienced and how they worked with them through that. But again, the storytelling aspect of that is so important to, uh, uh, you know, that the, the yeah. that ability to manage. A absolutely. Um, you know, I, at some point in my career, you know, we were building the company and um, most of our sales were just coming online, just like automated orders like SaaS. But then we we pivoted and became more of an enterprise, mid-market enterprise focused company. And we were, you know, getting involved with, with long sales cycles and doing lots of calls and Zooms and in-person meetings. And I found myself essentially, you know, um, being becoming like a, a sales engineer uh, for a lot of these larger, you know, um, opportunities. And and because um, I was like the head tech person and I absolutely loved it. It was so rewarding um, and it, it, I just enjoyed it. And, you know, part of what was cool about it was the buyer, the, the buyer on the other side where a lot of times they were, you know, VP of IT, VP of infrastructure, CTO, CIOs, whatever. And I noticed that like they were just folks like like me. And I was able to draw upon upon my experiences in in the trenches. You know, they tell me. I'd ask them what type of, of sand they were using or what type of cloud they were using. And I would and be like, oh, did you ever deal with this bug? Or, you know, damn, I hope you didn't experience this thing. And I was able to connect with them on a human level. And I'm just another tech person like you. I'm not, I'm not like a salesperson trying to sell you something. In fact, I, I would try to juxtapose the salesperson and say, listen, you know, my, my sales friend here is going to kill me if I say this, but why don't we just start out with like this one simple project, not overcomplicate things and then do this. And, and, you know, try to be an advocate, try to, you know, and try to connect with them. And I would build these really interesting, just sort of mutual respectful relationships with, with so many of the clients because they saw me as someone, someone just like that. Um, so, so much fun. So rewarding. Yeah. Well, uh, having been for the last decade, my, my main title was uh, chief evangelist. And <laughs> so you know, working for software companies doing that so much of it wasn't about Again, not not a salesperson. My job was to develop that trust. So I talked about authenticity um, and to uh, to help them to one identify, hey, you know the problem and th this solution. Here's how we would solve it. Here's how we'd approach it to answer those questions to build that trust. And you know, a lot of times I'd have when I go and speak on a topic and I'd be you know, with a level of authority of the platform. Again, my background in the Microsoft ecosystem, talking about Microsoft 365. I could talk about what the platform can do. 
what the gaps are and then what your needs are as an organization. And, and I'd, sometimes I'd come out of a session and people like, that's great, but I have no idea what your company does. Like, right. Mm -hmm. I wasn't pitching my, my company, but they will tell me about what you do. And it just would lead into those discussions. It had the trust. I was able to demonstrate, I understand the, the space. And so we could then have a, a conversation around, you know, here's how you actually go and approach it. And I've always been one of those people too, that, you know, I could tell people flat out like, Hey, our product won't solve this problem. I know like you started out by saying, it's like, you, you want to say yes um, <laughs> to, to solving customers problems as a product person. Um, I always saw uh, a positive coming out of telling a customer no we can't do this this here's where, where where the difference is sometimes i've even pointing them to a competitive solution because yeah. i was interested i was invested in solving the customer problem versus selling something uh, and long term i had plenty of those customers come back and buying from my company later that's, I mean, I, I think it's the only way, the only way to go, especially if you're trying to like, you know, if you're trying to sell on trust, you know, you have to engage and do those things, especially, I think, I think it's a win anytime you, you tell someone, you know, that's not our focus, or you should go talk to one of my competitors. Um, it, you know, that, that's, you know, that's a big deal. And, and I would do something similar. A lot of talks we give and we talk about, let's say, disaster recovery, you know, the, the form of the webinar format that I have always followed, always, you know, especially, you know, as it relates to services that we sell, because we are Optinine as a managed service provider, you know, people, not everybody needs a managed service provider. People can do it themselves. And so the, the, the format has always been the topic. Um, here are best practices, tips, recommendations, gotchas. Here's all the information that you should have here. Here are tidbits that you can walk away from the talk having learned. And then at the end, you know, I'll say, listen, um, you know, maybe we opened up your eyes to some things. You can take these tidbits and go do it yourself. Or if you'd rather outsource it, that's what we do. There's no right or wrong. And, you know, you just have to sit. Yeah, and actually, the hardest part of what a lot of people skip is, as a company, sitting down and thinking about, do we have an appetite to take ownership of this layer of our stack and that layer of our stack? A lot of people, they just run and go and do without even thinking if they should be in the business of managing X, Y, and Z. So we just say, think about it. We've opened your eyes to some of the complexities and some of the things to consider. Go, go take those things and do them. Or if you want to outsource, you know, send it to us. Um, but there's always got to be those tidbits. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I really uh, appreciate your time. I know this is a, this is a big topic sitting here talking about culture. I think I've got some good insights into how your company approaches, how you personally approach process any any other kind of parting words on uh, for an organization that is going out there trying to make that balance between you know hey are we just focused on being the best at the technology or what are the services we provide um, versus culture is it an either or does it have to be an either or no, I don't think so. And I think it's an inter interesting question. Does does you know have does being a great technology company make, make you have a better culture or having a great culture help build better technology? The only th the only parting words I would say is is you know ask the employees, open it up to them. You know how how can we improve our culture? But only ask it if you're willing to really make some changes and give them the power. They got to be in the driver's seat. And once they once they feel like they're part of the process, that alone will change everything. 
Well, so you really appreciate your time today. And uh, of course, we'll have uh, I'll have the links out in the podcast notes and out in the blog post as well to uh, to Opti9 and to ski to your social uh, um, mm-hmm. sites that are out there. So really appreciate your time today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Chris. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Collab Talk podcast. New episodes are published weekly, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. Thank you.